I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink. That famous line from the rhyme of the ancient mariner is just how our plants can feel sometimes. I'm Fiona Davison, and this is Gardening with the RHS. In today's show, we're focusing on water. Due to climate change, our water supply is becoming more irregular. As gardeners, we all need to think about how we can help reduce flooding, how to save water from when drought hits, and how to work alongside the natural water cycle, not against it. Which is why, later in this episode, we're hearing about the legacy of an inspiring water-wise plantswoman, Beth Chatto, who created a gravel garden that doesn't need to be watered. We're also catching up with some of my very knowledgeable RHS colleagues as they answer all your water-related queries. But before all that... What's the wider context here? And how can home gardeners help address the bigger issues? I wanted to speak to someone who knows a huge amount about the important issues around water. Janet Manning is the RHS's water scientist, and she's the perfect person to help us become more water-wise gardeners. Hello, Fiona. Nice to be here. So, Janet, this time of year, where are we at with water? What's the state of play in our gardens with water? Well, thankfully, it looks as though at the moment we've got more than enough water, haven't we? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so there's parts of the UK that's been flooded, yeah, and all the streams are running really well. There's plenty of water around at the moment. We can't get complacent, though, because this happened back in 2018, where we had the beast from the east and we had lots of snow melt. Within two or three months, we were in the middle of a very, very dry spell and struggling to keep everything alive with the dry weather. So it's not something to be complacent about. It's something to be thinking about. How can I make the best use of this water while it's around and hang on to some of it ready for the summer? It varies such a lot, doesn't it, our relationship with the water as gardeners? In the winter, there's too much of it. And in the summer, we're complaining there's not enough of it. Is it kind of just that we're too accustomed to thinking of water as always as a problem? I think so. And, you know, we've been accustomed to relying on just switching on the tap and the water being there. And Mm. it's cheap and it's readily available. So we tend not to think too much about it. With climate change, we're going to begin to see more extremes of weather. So like recently, we've had a lot more flooding. We've had more higher levels in rivers. We've had prolonged flooding as well and then last May if you think back to last May and it seems a long time ago now but it was a beautiful sunny May and it was the hottest and sunniest May that we'd had on record so yeah we seem to swing from one extreme <laughs> to the other it does stretch the water resources 
And what can we do to cope with those extremes, given that, you know, as you say, thanks to climate change, it seems that they're here. What can we do to kind of protect ourselves? All sorts of things. There's so many things that you can do in your garden. And I think the most important thing is to consider what resources there are available to you. I always think of water and your soil as the foundations of your garden. The Mm. plants are sort of the infrastructure, but your foundations are the soil and water, and the two are intimately linked. So if you've got lovely clay soil like they have over at Hyde Hall, (laughs) then... Lovely, not so lovely, I've got clay. Oh, it's lovely. I'd love to have clay soil. (laughs) Oh, no! (laughs) So, you know, I know it, it looks like plasticine at times, but it means that that's holding lots and lots of water. Oh, boy, does it, yeah. So, so yeah, and it bakes hard <laughs> in the summer and it holds the wet and it stays cold in the winter. But actually, if you've ever visited Hyde Hall, their soil that's been improved with organic matter over the years is fantastic stuff. It's really crumbly and it holds the moisture. You can make clay soil into really good water-retaining soil. Mm. So if there's one place that you'd say we should start to be kind of, you know, more water-wise, is it the soil or is there anything else we can do? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think considering what your soil is doing for you and how much water it holds is really important because not everybody wants to fix a a water butt. You know, most of the water companies like to encourage their gardeners to fix up water butts so that they've got water available to them in the summer, which is great. And if you've got space for them, that's fantastic. But not everybody wants one. They don't, some of them don't particularly look wonderful. Mm. You know, it's all right if you can hide them around the back of the shed or whatever. That's great. But people sort of forget that actually you've probably got even more space in your soil for capturing some of that rain when it does come. And just adding that organic matter, adding layers of mulch or compost on top of the uh, soil in the late winter when the soil's moist will keep the water in the soil. And it actually adds that extra layer of soil which is available to capture more rain as you get it in the spring. Mm. There's a lovely phrase in the old gardening books and they talk, I mean, these are really old, you know, from the 1600s, and they talk a lot about fattening the soil, that you put in organic matter to fatten the soil, make it good and fat. I always think that's quite a nice image. That's a really good analogy, actually, because that does happen. You know, you hear of organic gardeners who have been adding organic matter continuously, like Charles Dowding, I mean, with his no-dig methods, he keeps constantly adding more organic matter to the surface of the soil. And it does raise the level of the soil and it does get fat. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. We've talked a lot about water from the point of view of being kind of quite selfish as gardeners and wanting it to work well for us. But there are impacts on what we do, aren't there? I mean, lots of people have paved over their front gardens and maybe just have a few pots and in it, but there are impacts from that, aren't there? Can you explain how it affects water supply and, and how it affects what happens with water if we all do that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you can remember back, as I, I certainly can't remember doing it at school, but learning about the water <laughs> cycle at school. Oh, gosh, I remember my kids doing it again and again. <laughs> yeah, and it sort of explains how, you know, the water evaporates from the surface of the sea and the rivers and it forms clouds and then it rains and then it flows down the rivers and back into the sea again. But quite a lot of those water cycle diagrams and things sort of miss out the fact that actually an awful lot of water is drawn up through the plants to put back into the atmosphere. So by taking away our plants from our garden and replacing it with hard landscaping, instead of that water being put back into the atmosphere where it's out of the way from people, it's got to go somewhere else. So it runs off the surface 
it doesn't go into the soil because underneath all your paving you'll you'll have a nice sub base which doesn't really absorb the water like the soil would do as we just discussed and so that's all got to go and run off into a drain and then into a river and then the rivers get full up more than they perhaps would have done or the drains are filling up and it does contribute to flooding so we'd sort of forgotten that plants do an awful lot of returning the water back into the sky so that it can go and rain on somebody else further downwind from us. <laughs> and so if you've got a fr- if you're lucky enough to have a front garden, what kind of things should we be thinking about doing to make sure that they're as helpful as they can be in terms of absorbing water? Add some plants. Yeah. Um, it's very easy to have a sort of very neatly mown lawn on a front garden, but why not just cover the lawn over and fill it with shrubs instead? I'm just about to do that for my mother-in-law, actually. She's now in her 70s and she's decided she doesn't want to mow her front lawn anymore. So let me just plant it up with shrubs for you. And, you know, she's got a nice little concrete path up through to the front door and it'll look just as good full of shrubs as it would as a lawn. So, Janet, if you had to get it down to one golden nugget of advice, what do we need to do? The one thing we can do to be more water-wise... I think if you think about water a bit more and you consider what you would do if you didn't have enough, then you start to really prioritise what you need to do. Mm. A lot of the things are really simple, like we've discussed, you know, adding organic matter, adding a water bath. It's simple. It's just think about it. Just don't take it for granted and value it more. Well, thanks for that, Janet. That's brilliant. It's really lovely to hear from you. I've got lots to take away. So bye for now. Thank you, Fiona. Yeah, it's great to talk about organic matter. Who doesn't love a bit of organic matter? (laughs) You can read more from Janet in this month's edition of The Garden magazine as she looks at the many ways we can make our water work harder for us. She looks at the best plants for wet winters and dry summers and how to deal with downpours. We're going to hear about one of the original Waterwise Gardeners. Beth Chatto. Esteemed plantswoman Beth was most well known for her groundbreaking gravel garden and nursery. They're located in the driest part of the country, near Colchester in Essex, which gets about the same rainfall as Jerusalem apparently. Beth wanted to create a garden that would be able to thrive without the frequent watering which used to be common practice. Built on an old car park, the plot in fact has never been watered and features drought-tolerant plants in abundance. I spoke to David Ward, Garden and Nursery Director from Beth Chattel's Plants and Gardens, to hear how this special garden came to be. So Beth settled here in 1960. We are in the driest part of the country, driest part of Essex. We get sort of 20 inches of rain a year. It's a very low rainfall. What is now the site of the gravel garden was our car park. So it's dry, it's sunny, very sandy, gravelly soil. So as she sort of built gardening with the conditions that we have, she wanted to make a dry garden to grow all her sort of Mediterranean plants. And then Beth threw into the mix that we wouldn't water the plants. Beth was very much the driving force behind the whole concept. At that time, she was sort of very, very active, of course, and she had in her mind this. She's been on a, a lecture tour with Krista Lloyd, I believe that was in New Zealand. They went for a picnic and she saw this sort of dried up riverbed in the wild. She had this vision in her head that she'd love to create this river of gravel in her own garden. It's just somewhere to house all these sort of plants, 
Also, she wanted to be very informal. We're often asked, do we use a membrane? No, we don't, because we want the plants to seed around. We want everything to be quite naturalistic. There's no edges to the borders. So Beth was very keen to have the gravel carpeting the whole area, be it paths or borders. So the whole thing's sort of ebbs and flows. It's an open area. It's bordered on one side by some quite mature oak trees. It's very sandy, gravelly soil. And basically, it's just as Beth envisaged. It's a river of gravel that sort of runs through with, I suppose you would call them island beds. And then there's one very long bed that sort of runs along the hedge. And the whole scene's dominated by a very, very large eucalyptus, a snow gum with its magnificent bark that sheds every August. And it's full of plants that are adapted to survive the dry conditions. So quite common plants like lavenders, cat mints, cistus, rock roses, mallows, lavateras, that kind of plant. This time of year, it's full of bulbs. There's lots of crocus in flower, lots of uh, scillas, that kind of thing, the early spring bulbs. People often, especially these days, get fed up mowing their grass or watching their grass go brown every summer. And as long as you have an open, sunny site, that is a prerequisite because the gravel garden's there because it is dry, open and sunny. So if it was a clay-based soil in the shade, it would be a different story. So you must have a sort of open, sunny space, ideally with a free-draining soil. Clay soil would limit you. But with those two criteria, you can make a very small gravel garden just in a suitable area in your own garden, just by choosing maybe a dozen plants and give that sort of feel. We do top dress with gravel. You don't have to use gravel. You can use other types of mulch, other types of ground cover, covering material. But we think gravel just goes with hot dry. You can even do it in a sink garden if you really wish, if you wish to go really miniature, just using plants like thymes and house leeks, sempervivums, very miniature sort of alpine type plants, sedums, of course. And you could recreate that kind of feel in a very small area. When it was um, planted back in the 90s, it was really of its time, really, because um, we were starting to be aware of water conservation, you know, how important a resource water is. In fact, they famously appointed a minister for drought, I believe, around about that time in the, in the early 90s, mid 90s. And I think just to, for people to realise that they can have a garden that looks good without having to water it and worry, in fact, it might even look better if they don't water it. As long as they understand the seasons and how it does, how dryness does affect the plants, but have the confidence to know that the plants selected will grow and come back and be relatively long-lived. I mean, not all plants are, will last 100 years, but most of the plants we use are perennial plants. It's as relevant now as it was 30 years ago. My personal relationship with the garden is it's wonderful because I come down to work every day. It's the first thing I see every day. And I think to know that I've been part of a, a garden that's been there for 30 years, that has influenced so many people to perhaps create something similar in their own garden, not using water, and really sort of understanding about getting over sort of how important plant choice is and understanding your own garden. You know, you have a, most gardens have a shady side, a sunny side and getting that message across. And, you know, it's something that is, as Beth would often say, it's common sense, really, but sometimes we need common sense pointing out to us. <laughs> so it's been wonderful to be part of.
David Ward. Recently, the gardens have been listed by Historic England, giving them protection so people can enjoy them for years to come. The topic of being a water-savvy gardener is one that's clearly on the minds of all our members. Our advisory team is inundated, even flooded, with questions on everything from picking the best water butt to flood-resistant hedging. Let's join a team of our top-notch advisors to answer some of them. Hi, I'm Lee Hunt and today I'm joined by... Becky Mealy and Jenny Bowden. And now it's time to get to some of the questions. And our first question is from Jane Gray. My garden has a feature shed with a lovely pantile roof. As there is no guttering, the rain falls directly onto the border below. Could the panel please advise me on appropriate planting underneath this source of rainwater? Many thanks. Well, looking at the photograph, it's amazing, this little shed. It has got a wonderful plantar roof, but I think we should say as well that it's already very well planted round it. So I'm trying to think, well, what possibly could we add to this? Well, there are several things we could do. Obviously, it only floods occasionally, which is always a difficult situation. We've done quite a lot of work into this because we had a series of very wet winters followed by very dry summers. And we actually did a survey to ask gardeners which plants they found did best in those kind of conditions. And so I think that's certainly a list you could be looking at. The types of things you might look at would be hydrangeas, fuchsias, even grasses. There's some lovely grasses that tolerate those conditions. For example, miscanthus. There's one called calamagrostis, which is quite a mouthful. Daylilies would look great nearer the front. And iris siberica. The other thing that you could do, if you could get a gutter on there, I mean, there's, there are nicer materials than plastic that could possibly fit in, is to channel the water and look at making a rain garden, uh, which is literally where you would have a depression, like a saucer-shaped area, which gathers the water on an ephemeral basis, just obviously uh, when there's a storm. And you plant it up with plants that tolerate more water in the deeper part and then you grade it out so that the plants that prefer drier conditions are on the edges. And when it does dry out, the plants lower down will also tolerate the slightly drier conditions. Becky, I bet you've got some options too. I've just discovered a new Calmia if she's got ericaceous soil. So Calmia latiflora elf is a lovely little Calmia about meter by meter and you've got those gorgeous little pink flowers that look like the midget gems and that's very pretty cornice is another one dogwoods are great for having like been damp and actually being quite tolerant of the wet and dry hydrangeas i had them on my list and iris siberica that's what i've got in my kind of front of my garden this question is from stephen hart I'm looking at putting some hedges into my south-facing front garden. I've recently dug up some concrete and want some privacy. I'm especially keen to have hedges that can help prevent flooding. We've had problems here in the past and I'd like to do as much as possible to reduce the risks. So this is a very timely one, isn't it? Because we've been busy publishing our recent research. So this is looking at 
all the research out there on plants and what they might do to provide us with our environmental benefits. And the benefits are very wide ranging. So yes, we now know we can choose hedges that help prevent flooding. But we also know that in most cases, they'll be doing lots of other things as well. So that would be providing habitat for birds and wildlife. A lot of them can do things like trap pollution. And they can even help cool the air in summer by releasing moisture and transpiring it. Now, with flooding, what you want is something with a large surface area to its leaf and something with a high transpiration rate. And that means that they act like a pump. They take up the water from the ground and then they push it out into the air, so taking it away from the flood. The large surface area of the leaf means that when it rains, it lands on the canopy. It stays there for more than some plants and therefore slowly filters to the ground. So it reduces the amount of water arriving that could cause flooding to the ground at one time. We've got quite a few options here. So it depends what you particularly want to go with. But one of the top plants turned out to be Cotoneaster. Now, it's not the easiest thing to make a hedge of. It's quite twiggy. It's one of those things that will need quite a bit of clipping, but is very effective. It's probably best if it's no more than about 1.5 metres or so using something like Contoniaster franchettii, else it'll be a bit sprawly and liable to wobble a bit. However, that's a really good option. If you want something a bit more sturdy and bigger and good for wildlife, then good old Hawthorne's a great option for that. And it's our suburban old friend, Privet. It has the advantage of being evergreen, so it will provide some services throughout the year as well. Obviously, when things lose their leaves, they don't have a large surface area and they can't lose water, so they're not going to do as much in winter. So if it's winter flooding and evergreen's your friend, if it's more flooding following storms in summer, then deciduous plants like the hawthorn are great options too. And if anyone wants to read more about this issue, turn to the March edition of The Garden magazine, where there's a full feature on the hedges. Our next question is from Jackie Fox. I'm in the process of transforming a piece of land that used to have Shetland ponies kept on it into a garden allotment. I've noticed that an area about 10 foot square stays wet for a week after it rains, yet is dry otherwise. Do you have any suggestions for plants that I can grow successfully that would cope both with the wet and dry conditions? Also, if I add manure to try and improve the soil quality and structure, how deep should I go? Thank you for your help. Right, so we've got an area of land that's had ponies on and we have got quite a small area, really, 10 foot square that's got a bit wet. So why might that be? I'm, I'm just trying to think of the reasons. I think I know. I reckon that's where the water is, where the ponies would drink. I mean, I know ponies aren't very heavy, but I wouldn't want one to stand on my toe. So obviously they've compacted that area down where the water is and where they're feeding. And I think what I would do in that area is actually dig out an inspection area to see if there's an actual pan that's being created there just by the ponies just having a dance around i mean they, they do have a dance if that's a clay soil as well that just that action of the hooves is going to effectively puddle that soil isn't it where so if it's sticky we always know clay soil because we roll it into a ball and squash it it just forms a flat disc where if it's not clay it would just break up and of course, clay can be used to line ponds and i'm just wondering where we've got some hoof action going on so definitely an inspection pit, because not only would we find the pan, but 
it'll find out whether you have got like a hard layer of clay on the top. Jenny, do you think there's any benefit, therefore, of putting in organic matter, which she asked about? It depends what you find out after you've done your inspection hole and had a good look. But adding organic matter to soil, whether it's extremely well-drained or whether it's not so well-drained, is always a good idea because it improves the structure of the soil. Usually it is adequate to put sort of three or four inches of depth of organic matter and then dig that into about a spade depth is usually adequate or rotivate it in, which normally gets it down to about eight inches as well. I wasn't quite sure what was wanting to be grown there. She talked about a garden allotment, so I wasn't sure if that was going to be vegetables or whether it was ornamental plants. If it's vegetables and it still remains damp after you've spiked it and added your organic matter, etc., then it would be true to say that it might be problematic to have vegetables getting waterlogged for any length of time. A week could see off, depending on when it's wet as well. It's not the greatest environment to plant things. But if she was going for ornamental plants, then you could go with those damp conditions, go along the lines of the rain garden idea, or a bog garden, which you'd actually dig it out and line an area with a semi-permeable membrane or, or a, a liner and spike some holes in it so that it has some drainage and then go along the lines of bog planting. Or if you want to grow vegetables in that particular place, you might have a raised bed. I was kind of wondering with the, with adding trees, because obviously when you've got a large area, starting with the trees and then working down to the shrubs, whether actually having a few good sized trees would help it dry out because they'd soak up a little bit of that extra moisture. And then also then you've got the, the height to the area. That's the final option, isn't it, as well? If you've got a particularly wet area and want to dry it out, then one example like, which is not too huge, unlike willow would be older that you could put in that area to help dry it out a bit further. Well, thank you for all your questions this time. And it's goodbye from me, Lee Hunt. Goodbye from me, Becky Mealy. Bye from me, Jenny Bowden. And if you want to have your query answered by one of our team, just record yourself asking a question and email it to podcast at rhs.org.uk. Well, that's it for today's show. For more on Waterwise Gardening, follow the links at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast or look at our show notes. But until next time, it's goodbye from me, Fiona Davison. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit 
cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 